Well, I'm very thankful to be here. Um, this is an incredible place. It's an incredible group of people. I've never been to South Africa. Um, I've never been to one of our communities outside of Waco that's international. Um, the journey that God had me on going to Idaho and then finding Texas, being a small community to begin with, makes me feel such a connection to you all. I just love to see what God has done. And, you know, even when you don't see it at the beginning, you still know the progress somehow. And you can just feel the change and transformation. People carry it with them. And uh, I love being here. I love being uh, connected with you all. I'm so thankful for the opportunity to share today. And, uh, and hopefully just continue to move us on this same theme with another piece that maybe give us a bit more insight or understanding into what power and reliance the church is going to have to have to continue to see this go forward, the, the building project of God, the, the explanation to principalities, rulers, and authority of his great wisdom, purposes, and design when he made all of us. Amen. I was thinking about my own encounter with God and conversion experience, and I feel like it's analogous to the topic that I'm going to speak on today. And so I'm going to start there, not with a long story, but just quickly to give you a, a sense of how I came to the Lord and, and, uh, and the journey that I was on and where I ended up, and, uh, and I'm going to do that in a very condensed form, but it's going to be illustrative, I believe, of the topic. And so if you'll listen to some of these key points, Hopefully, as I start to go into it, you'll connect how I see them being connected. First is that um, I did not um, hardly go to school um, in high school or anything like that. I was in constant trouble and in and out of trouble. Um, I think the way that I got from one grade to the next is they would give me an exam at the end of my school year. And if I passed that exam and, saw, and demonstrated competency in enough subjects, they would say, okay, you can be a sophomore now. But it was certainly not because I attended. Um, I never read a book over 400 pages before I was 18, most certainly. I mean, I was not reading. I was getting in trouble. I was running around. I was just in a mess of, of relationships, both familial relationships, relationships outside of me. Um, I got uh, locked up in places they put young people that were, they can't put you in prison yet. And, you know, it was just, it was just a mess. But at 18, I had a powerful encounter with God. Um, he completely changed the course of my life. He put me on a whole different, in a whole different uh, direction, and and it was powerful. It, it but it was not in any way intellectual. It was an encounter. I don't know how to describe it. I was in a room. I can't tell you what the man was saying, but I know that I felt the presence of God hit me in the center of my being, and I remember calling out to God with all my heart, "Oh Lord, help me, help me. I'm so lost." God did it. He, he did. He helped me. He said, I'm a father to the fatherless. I will not leave you and I will not forsake you. Amen. And um, it melted me. I mean, I was disintegrated. <laughs> I, was, I was puddle that you could sweep up and put in a trash can at the end of the, of this, of the night. But I woke up the next morning and I felt wholeness. I felt as though I'd been restored to some relationship that was going to make everything work now. 
And not everything worked as though my life was going to be perfect, but I didn't have any fears. You know, I would get my blood drawn every week or so because I was pumped full of pharmaceuticals because they don't know what to do with an 18-year-old that's just a mess. So I was on three different types of things, and, you know, I would, I would fight and different things, you know, in order to act tough and things, but behind that was this man riddled with fear and anxiety. And when that fear and anxiety would come over me, I would actually start to hyperventilate and, uh, and, and go into a panic attack couldn't breathe and would lose my breath and be shaking uncontrollably. And so they started giving me pills and all these different things. And I remember at 18 in this encounter with the Lord, all those just went in the trash. And anxiety and fear and these things were gone. I felt like I, I just felt peace. I felt like I knew what was true and I knew where I belonged. I wasn't lost anymore. I had a reference point. And so I would say that the years that followed that, it was this yielding and reliance upon this new relationship with God by the Spirit. If I walked into a gas station and I didn't feel a release to buy a soda, I didn't buy a soda. If I, you know, felt that God was prompting me to share with this person something, I stepped out in faith and I shared it. If God said, go here, I went there. If he said, lay that down, I laid that down. I lived on every word that proceeded out of his mouth. I did not define reality anymore by what seemed right in my own eyes. I trusted in this new relationship to lead and guide me into all truth. Well, I, being young in the faith, and I was starting to speak at different churches and things like that, and um, I realized that I needed to be discipled. And so I started calling places um, where I could get a hold of men of God that I would see if they would disciple me. I didn't know how this worked, but that's what I read in the Bible, and I thought, I need a rabbi, you know. <laughs> I, I need someone who's walked this out and can show me his patterns, you know. And so I reached out to someone and given me a book. You sound a lot like this man. I read the book. It was The Gospel According to Jesus by John MacArthur, and I said, Wow, maybe this man will disciple me. So I called up John MacArthur. He didn't answer, but um, <laughs> I got his secretary. She didn't give me his direct contact. So I said, well, uh, so I looked in the back of the book, and there's R.C. Sproul, and there's Erwin Lutzer, and there's, you know, giants of the evangelical faith that this man gave me the book. I didn't know who these men were, but I, I thought, well, if they're referencing this book, they must agree with the man that wrote it. I agreed with what I read in these pages. It's what I was preaching that we must give all to receive all. And so maybe these men could disciple me. So I started trying to get a hold of R.C. Sproul and Erwin Lutzer. Okay, I need to get discipled. I don't know how this works. I'll just show up and then you can kind of teach me and pour into me and I'll find that form and pattern and we'll go from there. They didn't answer, and finally one day the secretary of John MacArthur's church said, you know, um, the way that you could get disciples, you just go to Bible college. Okay, what, what does that look like? Well, you'll just go to school for four years, and you can study the Word of God, and at the end of four years, you'll know the Bible inside and out, and then you'll be discipled. Huh, that sounds like a good plan. So... I packed everything I owned in the back of a Honda Civic, drove out, found a local newspaper that set a house for rent for, a room for rent for $400. I started washing dishes, selling big screen TVs at Best Buy and going to Bible college. 
I spent four years there, and that relationship I described to you, that powerful encounter with God, started to shift. And slowly, by degrees, not one moment where I said, I'm not going to rely on the Spirit anymore. I'm now a philosopher, an intellectual. No, I wasn't like that. Just by degrees, change, I found myself with my back to Zion and my face back to the city of destruction, and yet I didn't even know I was en route. I didn't understand that that's the course I was on because I had changed my relationship with the spirit of the living God, with the spirit of truth, with the one who would lead and guide me into all truth. And you would say, but you were studying the Bible. <laughs> Isn't the Bible the truth? Let, let's look at the temptation of Jesus. And I'm just going to go to it in the book of Luke because I'm already there. Um, let's go to chapter 4. Let's look at verse 9. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him upon the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God... Throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So here we see that simply quoting Scripture or knowing Scripture is not the same as being transformed by the inspired Word of God. So we understand that there has to be some difference here between the devil quoting Psalm 91 and Jesus saying, that's not this situation, and that's not the word for me at this time. Now, if this is a body of literature that is not living, then I would agree that he could have just appealed to this principle and appealed to that principle, and who knows, maybe this principle is a little bit more applicable here, and this principle was not so applicable. But it doesn't seem like that's what he's doing, does it? It seems as though he's not saying this is not just some body of literature out there. He's saying this word is living and active. Amen. And it comes to us by relationship. And we must yield to hear this word and know its application for the moments we're in. Would you guys all agree that the word of God has been used in pretty terrible ways to do a lot of quite terrible things? Numerologists would study it and tell you that the Antichrist is William Shakespeare. They would. And if you read it, and you don't have your head about you, you might go, this kind of got a point here. <laughs> it's very convincing, this rationalism and reason that man's capable of. The devil was very acquainted with it. He knew how to use it and to twist it. And he knew how to use it to proud men who would not require relationship with God to understand this word, but would trust in their own reasoning and their own seat of authority to understand things. 
And when men did that, they went from becoming children that depended upon God. And they started their ascent to be philosophers who spectated and looked down upon all the body of knowledge and decided good and evil for themselves. And so here I was in Bible college, but the Bible college I was in did not believe in the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. It believed in the Holy Spirit, but not in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, or the Word of God in the way I just relate it to you. And so as I studied, I became filled with knowledge and information. And I could debate the best of them. Probably not, but in my small little circle, it felt that way. And underneath that knowledge, a pride started to well up. And it was not perceived because I had higher social intelligence than that. I wasn't just going to go around with a puffed out chest acting like I knew everything. No one likes that person. I didn't want to be that person. But that person was alive and well inside of me. That person who exalted his own mind and his own thoughts and his own abilities to rightly divide everything just right, that man was alive and well. And the child that was born when he heard, I'm the father to the fatherless, I will not leave you, I will not forsake you, was dying. And as I continued that journey, God had a feedback loop to tell me that I was dead and not connected to that tree of life, but to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the way that he showed me that is that sin had mastery over me again. I no longer was whole. I believed and practiced something that was separated from one another. The devil had successfully separated out what was never supposed to be disjointed. He had pushed ideas out to that place where we talk about them and sit around and discuss them rather than ones whose very words when heard would change our inmost being and order our steps and put us in this exciting adventure of hearing God's voice and obeying. He was crafty, more cunning than all the other beasts of the field. And he knew how he was going to abort the work that God had started in my heart. He was going to abort it by reintroducing me to the knowledge of good and evil. And saying, if you eat of this sack, it's able to make one wise. And I thought, huh, maybe that is the way to truth, to power, to transforming life. It was not. And for 10 years, I went into a wilderness filled with sin that I did not feel the ability to overcome. I got to a point where I could not believe it, but having encountered God in such a powerful way, 17, I tried taking my own life, and now here I am, my early 30s, and I'm contemplating ending my life again. How? How would this happen? This should not be. I mean, I had such an encounter with God. How am I now in my 30s, back at the place I was at at 17, before I had this encounter. 
I had completely lost spiritual coordinates. And as I began to seek God, I said this one thing I'm asking from you, Lord, that I could know you as I knew you at first. I don't know how I departed. I don't know how I've gone to where I've gone to. But I want to know you the way that I knew you. At 18, when I called on your name, would you please restore me to that place of relationship? I don't know how to get there. And so all of a sudden I was in a, a three-day fast. And I say it like that. I want you to know this is not a religious exercise. I did not decide I'm going to fast and become a religious person, then God will accept me. I started to fast because I couldn't imagine eating another bite of food until God answered this question. How do I get right again, God? How do I get in the right relationship with you? How do I know you as I did at first? And I walked around 103, 105 degree heat in Southern California in a full suit, crying and acting like a fool, raising my hands to the heavens and saying, Lord, answer Show me where I went astray. And in that time, I walked into a uh, first day. I didn't feel like I heard much. Just a lot of tears, a lot of heartache, a lot of, I'm sorry, Lord, I'm seeing it. Second day was filled with the same heartache and tears. I'm seeing it even more clearly, Lord. You know? Can I show you briefly what I saw? This is not what I intended to teach on today. It's very connected. Amen. Can I show you briefly what I saw? Whew, this is skipping ahead, though. We're going to get into this in repentance. Ah, oh, it's okay. Okay, well. I'm going to say that that's an iceberg. and No, I'm not an artist. You can really see it, though, can't you? <laughs> okay. And let's say that that which was above visible is what I understood concerning myself, above the water. What I perceived concerning myself. And here's what I would say. I would say, God is a husband. I feel as though I care about my wife. I get her gifts. I take her out to nice meals. I don't forget a birthday. I don't forget Valentine's Day. The things that she really likes, I try to give to her the best that I know how. I feel like that I care for my wife. Lord is a father. I feel like I take my kids out fishing, show them how to shoot a gun. I care deeply for them. I don't miss a baseball game. They're my priority. I don't have hobbies or interests outside of my family. Lord, I feel like I'm an okay father. Lord, in my workplace, I don't cheat my employer. I try to work hard. I think about the hours that I am on the clock and what things I can do to contribute the general mission that I'm a part of. like I'm a decent friend. I got a lot of people in my life. I don't easily get offended by people. You know, if you have somebody that no one really ever gets along with, you'll usually end up being my friend. I, I, uh, 
I don't know what to say. The oddballs I like, they, they bring more flavor to life, you know. And so, I, Lord, I'm a decent friend. I said, you know, if I could just get this one thing, I'm just going to say it was less than my life. If I could get this one thing, Lord, figured out, you could, if you could get, grant me victory over this one thing, then, Lord, wouldn't I be really a reflection of your image? I mean, Lord, you've left this glaring mark in my life that tells me I don't have the power and dominion over sin. And I can't read your scriptures anymore and feel victory. So I know this is true. I know I'm a slave. And Lord, if you correct this one place, then I'm a pretty good husband. I'm a good father. I'm a good worker. I'm a good friend. Boy, we would be on our way to something, you know. So just let's get this squared up, Lord. I can't go another day without having the victory and power over sin. So that's what I saw. That was above the water. And on the second day, the Lord said, you want to know the truth that will set you free. Let me show you what's underneath the water. That whole thing, iceberg flipped. And this colossal mass formed up above the water that was myself. The Lord says, even I forgot to put up here. A Bible student. Still in my hypocrisy. Oh, I went to church and I studied the Bible. I woke up and read it. Now granted, when men came to me and said you should teach it, I told them, no, I should not. I'm enslaved to sin. Those enslaved to sin should not be teaching the Word of God. But here, in all these places, the Lord said, you want to know why you're a good husband? Because you like the idea of being a good husband. Do you know why you're a good father? Because you like the idea of being seen as that loving father. You want to know why you work hard at work? Because you like the accolades of men that say you're good at your job. You want to know why you're a friend to everyone? Because you couldn't possibly stomach somebody's rejection. You want to know why you're a Bible student? You use the word of God to stand on me and exalt yourself above every other God that they might all say, look at him and what he knows. You're afraid of not being, you're afraid of being in a room and not knowing everything. That's why you study. Not because you want to know me. And none of these things have been for my honor. None of them. Zach, you haven't been a husband because you feel an honor for me and want to reflect me. You haven't been a father for that reason. This has all been an image project. And it's an image of your own crafting. And it has nothing to do with me, though you've slapped my name on it. That was day two. Day three, I'm slow, so I didn't connect it. Day three, I'm fasting still. I'm barely sleeping. I'm crying out to God. I go into a bookstore to get a Bible. I walk out. There's a man sitting in tights, shaking his head, mumbling to himself. I thought, oh boy, this man's in a bad place. I sit down in my car and I feel the Lord say, you need to go pray for that man. 
Never mind you that I haven't heard the Lord's voice in 10 years. I look over it because I'm so accustomed to being my own seat of authority. And I say, well, no, no, no. I'm not going to go pray for that man. What do I have to offer him? A life of bondage? Sorrow? What can I tell him about his situation and the freedom that would be found if he were to trust in the words I would share? Lord, that won't do. I can't go to him like that. So I put the car in reverse and I started to pull out. And I felt the Lord say, no. And I felt the Holy Spirit sit on me like a 500 pound weight. Like an elephant stepping on your chest. Oh God, what is it? You know, I put the car back in the drive. I pull back into the parking spot. What is it, Lord? This is your whole life right now. Right in front of you, this is the fork in the road. At 18, I told you to follow me. You haven't a day since. You eat when you want to eat. You drink when you want to drink. You sleep when you want to sleep. You go wherever you want to go. But I said, follow me. If you will hear my word and obey it, if you will count that as your life, you'll never walk under the tyranny of sin ever again. You will walk in the light and not in the shadows. You will be liberated. And I remember going, I knew God was saying, this is your door of repentance. Run through it. Run through it. Lay down this authority. Lay down this way of knowing. Lay down this way of crafting. Be done with this project altogether and become a child again that lives off of every word that proceeds out of my mouth. And I knew if I responded in that moment, God's promise to me was true. So I said, okay, Lord, what is it that you would like me to do? Go pray for that man. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. That was coming up on seven years ago. I don't know of a time that I've willfully sinned against the Lord since. I was in bondage. And I don't know a time that I've chosen my way intentionally against God. I could have never said that before. Though I desired it, though I agreed with it, in my mind I found at war within my members something that could not come in alignment with that word. Since that time, God taught me that to truly know things is not the way we think of it. Amen. That He alone knows truth and is truth and that by being in right relationship with him 
and being sensitive to that spirit of truth that Jesus promised would come and lead us into all truth. That I could walk by the spirit and not gratify the desires of the flesh. And I could see and understand his word in a way that I could not in my own carnal mind. Now, before you just go and think, well, what do you mean in your own carnal mind? I mean it. I could talk through the entire systematic theology book from start to finish and articulate it in, in with some coherence. And yet I'll tell you, it was not spiritual truth, sustenance, or life. And I remember I had a close friend. He was a maybe a double PhD, THM, double masters. I mean, a guy who just spent 30 years in postgraduate school. And uh, I went on a supposed to be a 45-minute lunch break with him. I didn't feel to meet with him. I thought he was going to be too academic. I was done with those things. <laughs> um, but uh, a dear friend of mine, Kevin, walked in and goes, "I think you're supposed to meet with Paul." And I go. Boy, I'm not feeling that at all. <laughs> and he goes, well, I came in to tell you that that's what I feel. And I said, well, amen. We'll just see if God confirms it. And five minutes later, Paul knocks on my office door and says, can we get together for lunch tomorrow? And I said, Kevin, now did you preempt this or was this the Lord? He goes, I didn't talk to him at all. I said, okay, it's God. So I'm going to meet with Paul. Then I met with Paul and it was supposed to be 45 minutes and turned into three hours. And... As I continued to share and open up the scriptures and the word of God to him, he continued to just, he had this distraught look on his face. And at the end of it, after talking about Abraham and the circumcision that he underwent and the mark of covenant that was being signaled by the removing of flesh from the center of our desire and being yielded completely to the spirit to live by his word. When we got done going through that, he goes, where did you learn all this stuff? We went to the same college. We sat into the same professors. I didn't learn any of this stuff in those classes. I said, I didn't either. He said, where are you getting these insights then? I said, I promise you, listen to me, I promise you, if you will become like a child, then they will marvel and say, are these not uneducated and common men who speak in our midst? And yet they do with such authority. And I remember him going, how do I come into that type of relationship? How do I undo this massive mountain of confidence that I have in my own mind, in my own abilities, my own discernment? You feel a little bit like what Brother Ossie said this morning in talking to Nicodemus. This is going to be painful to the flesh, isn't it, Lord? This is going to be a reduction of me all the way down into an analogous Roman crucifixion. A naked and shame giving myself fully in trust to not manage anymore this fear or manipulation, but to trust God without reservation. Well, I kind of taught my seminar through my testimony. Didn't I say it was going to be really condensed and then would get on to something that you'd connect to? 
I want to talk about the systematic assault that the devil has against one central idea. And that idea is the incarnation. I believe the devil is more interested in obscuring this from every heart in this room than he's interested in, in obscuring any central truth. I believe that if he can cloud the promise of reconciliation seen in a man in complete oneness with God and his spirit, then he, he can cloud the hope of that promise happening in our own hearts and in our own lives. I believe that he is intent on figuring out a way to get us to constantly eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil and to reject the other alternative given to us in the life of Christ where we see one who is not determining things for himself but he is looking to the Father what you speak I speak what you do I do not my will your will be done I believe that what's occurring there is salvation for all who would abandon the one and be baptized and immersed into the other. And I believe the devil is intent on getting this confused and getting us to say that we're following Christ while eating of the knowledge of good and evil. Did you guys connect that in my testimony? Were you able to? I think we've added the piece that we need to add right now. I just want to sharpen it just a little bit in our own minds, okay? Do you guys remember a guy by the name of Tertullian? Who's, who remembers him? Maybe she'll raise a hand. Okay. Um, he had a lot of famous sayings. The martyr's blood is the seed of the church, different things like that. But do you remember a saying that maybe stands out, rings out across history? What has... Athens and Jerusalem have to do with one another. Do you remember that? Uh, what does the academy and the church, he said, have in common? That's what he said. What Athens and Jerusalem have to do with one another? And uh, I know he said in Athens and Jerusalem, but I'm going to write up on the board Jerusalem and Athens because I like to start from the right way that it is and then show you what the wrong way it is. And if I do it the other way, I get very confused in my brain. That's why I don't drive in South Africa. <laughs> <laughs> Are we still friends? <laughs> okay, Jerusalem. I think we could all we could all quickly say that the path to life is relational. Would you guys? Agree that that's a that's a very quick summary of what was taught to us from the Hebrew Scriptures, Amen. right? Yes. We see relationship with yes. God is the path to life. Yes. I will make a new covenant; they will all know me. Amen. Okay. Would we also agree that in Athens you could say that the path to life was the ascent of the rational mind? Amen. Would you guys agree with that? Yes. That reason 
was seen as that which we held in common with the divine. Because the divine was noose or mind. And the more we came into pure rationalism, the more we were one with noose or the mind. Right? So, you know, some of the, like Plato's Republic, you're going to have the philosopher king, who is the pinnacle expression of this. Right? And you can think about in the tripart nature of Aristotle, where he's going to say you have these base natures of desire, and then you have something that sits above that with morality, and then you have something that sits as the authority over all of that, and that's reason. And the man who is perfectly a man of reason sits as an authority over all of his members and does everything that is perfect and right. Rational mind, reason, as or relational. But is this struggle between these two, is it really as only as recent as the 5th century BC when these philosophers started talking about these things? What do you think? Did it start then? No. Well, I wish we could find like a really old story. <laughs> Something that, you know, was like, almost like in the beginning kind of thing. <laughs> and then if we could get there and we could get all the way back to the beginning, we can maybe find a pattern that tells us what shapes everything that's downstream from that fountainhead, right? Well, do any of you guys have any ideas of what that story would be? Amen. Well, I mean it. Just I'm going to have you talking because I I I got to keep you awake. So and the serpent was more cunning. Okay, the serpent was more cunning. Okay, so there wasn't. Two different ways of knowing things in the garden, were there? Yes. Oh, wait, there were. Okay. What were they represented by? Trees, two trees. Two trees. Okay. I feel like we're getting somewhere. <laughs> the first tree was called the tree of life. Oh, life. life. And how would man participate in that tree? Walking Did he walk with God as in the cool of the day? Walking with God. Amen. Did God breathe into Adam his spirit? Amen. There was a relational knowing. It was from the heart. It was the unity of heart, mind, soul, in complete dependence and relationship with the one who had formed it. If you take a young child at the age of four years old, three years old, and you put them into a busy marketplace. I'm talking like a Far East kind of outdoor shopping marketplace, busy, foreign, things going every which direction. Take that young child and you hold his hand as you stand in that marketplace. Does that young child pin? He does not. Not at all, does he? No, he's, he's got a relational coordinates that tells them everything's okay. Amen. And that will show me. That will lead me. That will help me through this phase. What happens to that same child if the father lets go of his hand and disappears into the crowd and the child cannot see him? How long before that child becomes hysterically gripped with fear? Yes. Seconds. And then seconds he's going to go. And what's his reference point? He has no reference. You see that? Yes. 
It says the man, after he ate of a different tree, recognized that he was naked, vulnerable, exposed, yeah. without reference points. In Athens, man's not going to stay there. He's not going to stay as that whimpering child. Okay? He, he, he's got a different fruit offered to him that he can eat of. I'm going to put this one upside down because the wisdom that is from below is this way. Yeah. This was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And man, when he ate this, said that you will be wise and you will become like God. Now, in Athens, do you remember how the Greeks were represented as gods? Right? And where did they sit? On their thrones, Mount Olympus, right? Yes. And what was the play that went on in front of their eyes as they sat on their lofty mount? Human behavior. Human behavior, life. Life. Life got lived out in front of them as they were the spectators above all, looking down and seeing this. Right? That tree and this tree, I just don't want to lose that point, represent a system of knowing. One that's given to you relationally and one that is formed from your own carnal mind. It's a whole system, the way you relate to things and know things. One is going to be driven by fear, vulnerability, the need to answer the absurdity of your death. Okay? The other one's not. It's going to be driven by the absence of fear because you know in whom you have trusted. Amen. Amen. God is spirit or is light. And maybe we could put it like this, even though you probably think of the sun. And I don't necessarily intend that. Um, the sun would be natural light and God is holy light. But we can think of it this way. And then let's put man here. And how does man understand everything around him through a relational knowing of God who is light and spirit man then sees everything else from that lens and vantage point of right relationship with him so he sees money within that what else does he see friendship relationship, uh, relationship. work Family. Through this relationship, he has understanding to the meaning, purpose, significance of all of these things here. And he's not manipulating these things, trying to control them out of insecurity or vulnerability because he's in right relationship. So the exodus for Abraham is an exodus into relationship. He keeps trusting God. I won't call her my sister anymore, Lord, I trust you. He keeps trusting God. Okay, it's not through Ishmael, it's through Isaac. He keeps trusting God. Okay, Lord, I've put wrong affections upon Isaac. I need right relationship with you. Even to the altar, I'll take him, Lord. And step by step by step, he's coming back into the tree of life, into the way of relating with God that brings life. Man on this side... He's put God as reason. 
So does he really need God or just to appeal to reason? He doesn't need God. He just needs to operate according to logic, to reason, to rational principles. And in so doing so, his light of revelation comes from his own mind. And so he sees everything according to this. So let's look at what that would look like. Let's take this one away. I'm going to put this one more prominent. I've never drawn any of these things before. I'm hoping everybody can sense. Okay, God is reason. Man walking in this life. He's looking. Let's say he's looking and he sees a problem. I'm going to describe problem as a tension that he feels in the balances of right decision, wrong decision. Tracking? Yes. Man run, walking in this life, he's got reason to be his guide. Here we go, here we go. Problem. Problem is the right thing to do compromises my vulnerability project. So I'm trying to manage my vulnerability, and the right thing to do here, if I do it, boy, it's going to make me a little bit vulnerable. Okay, let's, let's just use something real practical. I have a little bit of money in my pocket. It's the only money that I have to take care of myself today and get some bread. I run into a man. He's in, he's in great need. Should I give him that money? Well... If God is rational, and reason is the definition of that highest absolute good, then what's the right decision? Well, to continue my existence seems like it's needful. I don't know what this man's going to do with his bread. I don't know what his plans are, but ultimately I need to manage my fear of death and exposure of not having what I need. I need to manage that. So the wrong thing presents itself and says, uh, well, look over that man. Don't share what you have with him. And look at him as just another one in the struggle with you, and he'll have to find his own way. Maybe the balance tips. Okay, I don't want to get stuck on this. All I want to show you is that when God is reason, and we're not in relationship with him, we make decisions about problems in our life based upon fear and vulnerability. Amen. That's Amen. ultimately what manages that decision-making process. Amen. Can, I, can I add yes. something here? Please. A perfect example is the one you already gave about Abraham. Amen. If Abraham's God is reason, and he thinks he's receiving this word to go take his son to an altar, Amen. there's no way he's going to do it. Because he's going to reason and say, no, God said I was going to be a multitude. He provided this son. Therefore, he, there's no way he could be telling me to make this sacrifice. Amen. Whereas trust played havoc with that. Amen. I think also of, of Noah. It's a less obvious choice. But from all scientific speculation, <laughs> Noah would have had no precedent Amen. for the flood that was coming. Amen. So the notion that he could have reasoned his way into it is impossible. Amen. The salvation would have been to trust something that was going, that was operating outside of his reason and even contradicting his reason. Amen. Told them that would have been impossible. This man 
whose reason is his ultimate authority, can ultimately spectate on everything. He can spectate on who God is, can't he? Yes. Did the Greeks have a definition of God? Amen. They did. He was a philosophical absolute, transcendent, motionless, passionless, just this energy being of mind. And so they could define God. They could define meaning, purpose, and ultimate, a plan for salvation. Because they know there's an absurdity to man's death, and they need to figure it out. And so they had a plan for that. So ultimately, man's reason and mind sits as an authority, and it's interesting because it sits, it stands over God, and it determines who God is. It does this, do you think, with the scriptures? Yes. Can anyone think of a passage in which Jesus contrasts relational knowing with this type of knowing? John 5. Amen. Okay, the word of God cannot be broken. What were you thinking in John 5, brother? Yes. Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have life, but they are those which speak of me, but you are not willing to come to me, that you may have You search the scriptures, because in them you think you can construct your salvation house that you're going to live in. But you refuse to come to the one who could transform you and bring that true life and wholeness to you. Now, I, I get it. He was talking to a bunch of atheists, right? No. He was talking to a bunch of people who said, it, said there is no God or anything like that, right? No. You know who he's speaking to? He's speaking to people who are going to form the Talmudic traditions. And do you know what they would say? We have no need any longer of a prophet because we now have a scholar. We don't need this relational knowing of God any longer because now we see by the infiltration of Greek thought Amen. Philo was very instrumental in this. You guys have probably all heard of him, a Jewish church historian. He interpreted all of the Old Testament underneath a philosophical allegory. Essentially a philosophical lens so that everyone can see how philosophy and Athens and Jerusalem could be married one to another. And those were the men that Jesus is encountering saying, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have life, but you refuse to come to me. You see why Jesus is talking about you have to become like a child to enter? How much different this is going to be for everyone? Amen? Amen. So, this marriage of Jerusalem and Athens. Was the early church concerned about this? Yes. Let me, can I read a few passages with you and just tune your ear and let's see if we can hear what they were saying. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. 
But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion for Christ. Do you hear what Paul says? He's writing to the Corinthians and he says, I betrothed you to one. I'm concerned that you're being deceived by cunning in the same way that that serpent deceived Eve and you were departing from a pure and simple devotion to Christ. Do you guys see that? Okay, so what was going on in the Corinthian church that he was so concerned with? Well, you just flip back a few chapters and here's what he's going to say. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Do you hear it? So he says, look, men are coming in with cunning and they're leading you astray. And just like Eve was presented with the knowledge of good and evil that would make one wise, I fear that same temptation now lies in front of you. And it's because you think through the wisdom that these men are peddling to you that you are somehow going to graduate into this supreme reason that can sit as an authority over everything in your life. And he's saying, that is not how you learned Christ. And that is not the way his church and his kingdom is going to advance. You can feel the tension as he continues. I mean, he, next chapter, my speech, my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith may not be in the wisdom of men, but built in the power of God. He says this in the same book to the same people. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagine that he knows something, he does not yet know it as he ought to know it. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Amen. Do you see his concern? Do you feel the burden as he's writing? Amen. Beware, he's writing to the church in Colossae now, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. According to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of this world, and not according to Christ. For in him the, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him. Do you feel that? It's the same thing. Here, here's First Timothy. He, he sends Timothy over to the church of Ephesus to be an elder and, and get them in, in line. He says, oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and the contradictions of what is falsely called, quote, knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. He goes on, 1 Timothy 6, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind, deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. 
He says there are people who are coming in and they are in a constant state of this division and this, this debate about the knowledge that they have and the wisdom that they have. He's concerned that this is going to fragment the church and fragment the movement of God. And he's saying, stay grounded. Stay grounded. You, you know the way that you've come to know him. You know that anointing that you heard. You receive me not as a man, but as Christ Jesus himself, he says to Galatia. He says that the words that I gave you, you did not receive as just words, but as the very word of God, he says to Thessalonica. You know, to the, the, the Christians in Thessalonica. He appeals time and time again to this idea of keep listening to the anointing and tune your ear to that anointed word as it's coming. Do not get swept away back into a way of relating and knowing that's going to sever you from God and create fractions amongst the people. That's what his concern is. Amen. Amen. Let me read this one here. Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would not have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest, that none of them were of us, but you have an anointing from the Holy One. And you know all things. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and you know that no lie is of the truth. So here is the church of Ephesus and a whole group has just left. And how does John appeal to those who are left behind? Probably lost very close friends, people they were close with, something fractured. Some of them went one way, some of them stayed. And he appeals to them and says, you made the right decision. And what's his appeal? What are they to stand on to know that they made the right decision? The anointing. The anointing. It is not that they went and interviewed everyone in the conflict and they weighed all the weight and evidence of it and all of this. He says, you know the anointing. And you know when you hear it in our voice and you know when you don't hear it in the voice of a stranger. And he says that when you hear that voice, you trust that that is the spirit that is leading God's people into all truth. Amen. That's his appeal. And he says in another place in the same letter in, in chapter four, he says, those men, they speak and they speak from the world. Meaning they speak in the style and manner and appeal of authority that the world does. And he says, but those who speak concerning God, they, they speak with his authority. You know, you know when, when they were confused about this very thing and the people of Israel were, were being led in a wilderness, there were men that started rising up and going, we can lead these people too. We have insights. We have knowledge. We have great ways of thinking about things and talking to people. Who made you, Moses and Aaron, to be so great amongst all the people? Who appointed you to puff yourself up above everyone else? Well, Moses, was he being puffed up? Was he puffing himself up and strutting around? But these men, they, they, they were attacking the anointing that was on Moses' life. And they were saying, who made you so special? And Moses would say, God, not by my own choosing, 
Not by my own merits. But God has chosen this. And so these men, these men, these Korites, they, they get very upset and, and, and they say, you know, we're, we're going to come against this and we're going to lead the people. And how many of the leading elders did they take with them? 200. 200 leading elders. A major coup attempt is happening against Moses and Aaron. And the ground swallows up these men. And do you know what the next day brings? He says, go get a staff from every head of household. And take that staff and lay it down on the ground. And he goes, and the staff that blossoms, the staff that buds life, that staff, that staff is the one that I'm going to tell you can lead the people. You guys remember it was Aaron's staff and he put it in the Ark of the Covenant as a memorial for God's people of all time that this is what will lead my people, the Spirit. And those sensitive to the Spirit, those yielded to that authority, that will be the leading of my people. Quite an interesting place that God's put us in. Almost vulnerable like children. Wouldn't you say that we have to be so tender and sensitive to only hearing God's voice as it's coming through men and to know that that's the Spirit of God that's bringing truth? I mean... This is a quite different way of, of really relating to truth altogether. That's, that's not what we would choose, would it? I mean, we would rather know. Let's, let, let's get a better appeal of authority. You know? Don't you guys feel that that's the temptation in all of us? To have some type of authority that seems more legitimized. Has a grounding in something more than just someone coming under the anointing and speaking. And saying, oh God, I hear a creative word that could change my life coming forth as that word is being spoken. That would almost seem as though that we're going to have to live on every word that proceeds out of his mouth as a course of life. As a way of living. But I thought we graduated out of that. I thought that's what the, those Israelites didn't get in the wilderness and then Jesus came and he just gave us the word of God and then now we can just allow those who are intellectually superior to all of us to be that great divine mind that sits as the authority and we'll just listen for the sharpest reasoning and know, ah, that's it. That's the anointing. But reason always is operating from some reference point. So it was reasonable that the 11 disciples said to Peter, why did you go to Cornelius' house? We're not supposed to eat with the Gentile. Why did you share a common table with him? Now, was that reasonable? It was. Their whole framework said that that was right. And yet Peter, underneath the anointing, stood up amongst his brothers and said, listen to me, men. <laughs> when I started speaking, the Spirit of God fell upon these men just as it did to us. And they broke out with tongues and spoke prophetic words. As soon as they heard that anointing, those men stopped and said, this is God. You want to know one of my favorite passages for this? It's on the other side of resurrection. And Jesus puts his figure in a way that men walking on the road to Emmaus don't recognize him. And so they're walking with this man and they're just... What do you mean you don't know what's happened in Jerusalem? Where have you been? You know? And, and, 
and not only do you sense that they are, you know, bewildered by it, but they're frustrated by it. This has meant everything to us. Our whole life hangs on this, and you don't even know about it? What have you been doing? Yeah. I mean, he's deeply bothered, you know. But then we're told that that man who's walking with them on that road, he begins to speak to them. Starting at the beginning, he opened them up to the scriptures. He opened their understanding to the word of God. And he started to speak to them underneath that anointing. And when those men, later on, that day, when their companion kept going and they were left there, they recognized that the one who had been in their company was the Lord. And this is the way that they perceived that he was in their midst. He said, did not our hearts burn within us? And the reason why that passage is so remarkable to me is because it's like the Lord telling us, on the other side of resurrection, I'm going to disperse my spirit onto all flesh. The anointing that you experienced with me in person, I'm going to now give gifts amongst men and for the building of this church. And you're going to need to recognize that voice when it's no longer in the form you've been accustomed to. You used to only look for it in this one place, and now you're going to have to feel after it. You're going to have to hear my word as it's around you and coming to you. It's such a remarkable thing. And these men are saying, our hearts burned within us. And we knew it was the Lord.